This is the Northwestern Medicine Pod Talk. Here's Melanie Cole. What causes your heart to feel a flutter or skip a beat? If it's not something like love, it could be a heart rhythm disorder. And my guest today is Dr. Jessica Delaney. She's a cardiac electrophysiologist at Northwestern Medicine, Bloom Cardiovascular Institute, Delnor, and Kishwaukee Hospitals. Dr. Delaney, when people feel that skipping a beat or flutter, what is that? What are heart rhythm disorders? Heart rhythm disorders are, can be your heart rate going too fast or your heart rate going too slow. So when people are feeling their heart flipping or flopping, palpitations, racing, that can be a sign of either too fast or too slow. Um, and so the first thing that we do when we meet with patients is to determine what is the cause. Then let's talk about that and causes, because before we even do that, Dr. Delaney, why don't you give us a little physiology lesson about how the heart works and how whether it's an electrical system, circulatory, structural, all these systems work together. Okay. Um, so what I do is actually I'm, I consider myself an electrician for the heart, so I primarily deal with electrical disorders. When people are feeling their hearts flip-flopping, what that usually means is that it's out of rhythm. So when your heart is in normal rhythm, most people don't feel it. It's automatic. The heart beats from the upper chambers, and then that slowly goes down into the lower chambers. And so when it's beating at a regular interval, people are unaware of it. It's only when it becomes out of rhythm that that's when patients feel it. Are these kinds of disorders life-threatening, or are the extenuating comorbidities that they can cause what are life-threatening? Sure. That's a great question. So we do, unfortunately, deal with life-threatening arrhythmias at times, and that can be when you have an abnormal rhythm coming from the bottom chamber of the heart. That's usually in people who are already known to have heart disease and are already being followed by a physician. And that is due to their heart beating too fast from those lower chambers. What I'm usually seeing when people come into my clinic with these irregular heartbeats is that they're getting newly diagnosed with an arrhythmia. And if someone were to have, for example, atrial fibrillation, which is one of the most common arrhythmias, this comes from the upper chambers, it can lead to stroke. And so when you meet with somebody who has this new diagnosis, you need to establish whether or not they need to be treated for the possibility of a stroke with a blood thinner or something like that. How do you diagnose what it is? And sometimes, Dr. Delaney, people don't feel it. If they have AFib, they don't always feel their heart racing or that pounding or pulsing. So is it found incidentally on a well exam or an EKG? How do you diagnose these types of disorders? So often patients, you're right, they don't feel their arrhythmias. And so they can have symptoms for example, that they're more tired than usual, or they, they're exercising and they can't do as much as they usually could. For example, maybe they're running on a treadmill and they notice their treadmill can't go as fast as normal. So we call that exercise intolerance, meaning that their exercise level is reduced. People can also feel lightheaded and dizzy, um, and that would be a new symptom to them. And so it's not always that people feel you know, flip-flopping or racing, they can have more of these low-grade indolence symptoms that they don't feel necessarily or that they attribute to an arrhythmia. But whenever somebody tells their physicians about these symptoms, 
physicians do always think of, could this possibly be a heart rhythm disorder? And so the way that we then diagnose that is usually through the use of monitors. So we'll first try with an EKG, which is done in the office where the stickies get put on the chest and you get connected to a machine and we get that printout on the red paper. If that is unrevealing and normal, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything's okay. And so that's when we delve in deeper and that's when we recommend monitors. So there's all uh, different lengths of time that you can wear a monitor for. Some are just for a day, some are for two weeks, some are for a month. And even in those rare situations where patients have worn a monitor for an extended period of time and we still have a suspicion that something could be going on, there's even an implantable monitor that we can put in under the skin that's about the size of a AA battery. And that has a battery life of two to three years. Who would be at risk? If you're telling us about all of these ways to diagnose it, who would be somebody that would even go to see a cardiac electrophysiologist to get this diagnosed? Are there certain risk factors or a genetic component to heart rhythm disorders? Absolutely. So as in everything in life, age is one of the biggest risk factors. So the older that you are, the greater risk you have for arrhythmia. Also, people who already have a history of heart disease or at increased risk for certain arrhythmias. So that may prompt further evaluation. Um, there can be family members of uh, family members with histories of arrhythmias and dependent on the type of arrhythmia that they've been diagnosed with, that also can necessitate further workup. And other things that you may not think about are um, patients who also have obstructive sleep apnea, which is where patients have problems with snoring and sleep and fatigue. That's actually one of the bigger causes of arrhythmias that seems a little bit more unknown. And also heavy alcohol ingestion can lead to arrhythmias. So it's pretty much the standard risk factors that you think of for heart disease being diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, family history of heart disease, family history of arrhythmias, and then also these other things of sleep apnea and alcohol ingestion. Well, that's a lot of risk factors. So we have to take a look at that when we're assessing our own risk what kinds of exciting treatments are out there now and available for atrial fibrillation or any of the other heart rhythm disorders we're discussing? So treatment of arrhythmias, this is actually a very exciting time to be an electrophysiologist because things have changed significantly in the last 20 years. So the field of ablation has grown exponentially, and now we are able to offer ablations for patients who have arrhythmias that were you know, previously patients would get ablations for um, being uh, like what what are called SVTs is the term that we often use in the field, meaning supraventricular tachycardias. But now also atrial fibrillation, which is an abnormal electrical heart rhythm coming from the upper chambers. We can actually go into the heart and burn the tissue that's causing the AFib to get started. And we also can do ablation for patients who have arrhythmias coming from the bottom chambers, and that those arrhythmias are called ventricular tachycardia. And for those cases of patients who uh, also have further risk for ventricular tachycardia that we cannot completely get rid of with ablation, there are implantable devices called defibrillators where they can treat the fast heart rhythm from the ventricular tachycardia. So if a patient were to have an episode of ventricular tachycardia, the defibrillator would first try to 
get their heart out of the rhythm by beating faster than the arrhythmia. And if that's not successful, it can actually deliver a shock. And that's implanted under the skin. And then lastly, we also have pacemakers, which have been around for a very long time, but they also have gotten smaller in size. And those devices are used for when somebody's heart rate is too slow. And actually, more recently, there is a, a pacemaker that can be implanted inside the heart through the leg. And so you don't have the traditional battery and device under the skin around the shoulders, which is where you usually see it. The whole system is is in one little unit that you insert into the, in through the leg into the heart and then can leave it there in the heart. Wow, isn't that fascinating? What you're able to do now today, as you said, that is such an exciting time to be in this field Tell us about lifestyle changes, modifications you would like people to know about to hopefully prevent heart rhythm disorders. Can they be prevented? And what modifications do you really advise people to make? Absolutely. So the first thing that I always talk to my patients about are diet and exercise. And weight loss is very crucial. And they've actually found that for patients who are overweight with atrial fibrillation, weight loss and exercise can actually lead to a reduction in the amount of atrial fibrillation that patients have. So there's a direct relationship there. And so that is one of the cornerstones of treating atrial fibrillation is evaluating proper diet and exercise. Other things are avoiding a Increase alcohol ingestion. Moderate alcohol ingestion is, is okay. We always talk about a glass of red wine being good for the heart, and that's the same for atrial fibrillation. But once we're having higher levels, that's when it's probably not good for your heart. Um, other things are treating high blood pressure, treating your diabetes, keeping these under control. And especially if you've been diagnosed with sleep apnea, treating your sleep apnea, which many patients, they don't want to wear that mask that we always hear about, the CPAP mask, saying that it's uncomfortable, but there's actually a direct relationship between wearing the CPAP mask and reducing your AFib also. Wow. You know, those connections are not always things that people would think about or realize. As we wrap up, please give us your best advice, Dr. Delaney, for heart rhythm disorders, what you'd like us to know about your field and some of the latest advances that are happening today and what we can do to keep a healthy heart. So heart rhythm disorders are actually predominant in the population. And as our population is getting older, we have many more patients with atrial fibrillation. And so a lot of the growth in the field of electrophysiology has been in treatment of atrial fibrillation. And we've started to show that these ablation procedures, although they're not necessarily curative, they can provide patients with a suppression of their atrial fibrillation for very significant extended periods of time and can really help their quality of life. And so whenever I'm taking care of patients who have an arrhythmia disorder, I discuss with them the importance of quality of life and the importance of letting me know if they don't feel well. Because patients will, you know, say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm tired or I just can't exercise as well because I'm getting older and they often say that. And I don't want to hear that because I know that a lot of the time it's actually due to their arrhythmia and it's not due to anything wrong that they've done. And so we really do need to treat the arrhythmia and we need to, you know, constantly look at the options because they are 
changing. Even medications are changing. Ablations are changing. And just because something may have been done, you know, five years or 10 years in the past doesn't mean that that's how we're going to do it again. And so you need to constantly reevaluate, are we doing the best thing for you? Are we giving you the best treatment options that there are available? Wow, it's great information. And as I said before, a fascinating topic and what a time to be in this field. Thank you so much, Dr. Delaney, for being with us today and sharing your expertise. You're listening to Northwestern Medicine Pod Talk. For more information on the latest advances in medicine, please visit nm.org. That's nm.org. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for tuning in.